Uh, Leo Tolstoy, a brilliant Russian novelist, as maybe some people here have read of him before. Uh, his literature is so widespread, he's written millions of words, probably most notably on war and peace. But many regard him as one of the greatest authors of all time. One person said his work was not just a work of art, but a piece of life. And how profoundly he would look at someone's psyche, he would look into the complexities of the human heart, and he would just shed so much wisdom upon just the human experience, who we are as humans. And before becoming hugely impacted in the later part of his life by the Sermon on the Mount, and converting to Christianity, he wrote a, a large confession. I don't know if anybody has been able to get their hands on it. If you have read any of his confessions, it is, it's gut-wrenching. And he writes about his moral disillusionment and spiritual discontentment about his work, about his writing, about his purpose. And I just want to share one part of it. I mean, this is just one keyhole into what he has written. And he says... My question was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. As I have found by experience, it was what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live, wish for anything, or do anything? It can also be expressed like this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death that awaits me shall not destroy? How, how's that for encouraging? He, he continued on and he says, just, the, just a small paragraph here. It's as if I, as I lived, and I lived and walked and walked, till I'd come to the precipice and saw clearly that there was nothing ahead of me, but destruction. It was impossible to stop, impossible to go back, and impossible to close my eyes and avoid seeing that there was nothing ahead but suffering and real death, complete annihilation. Well, I'm not sure what your experience here is this morning. Maybe you think that I'm actually rather aloof to what he's saying here. I haven't lived that long or experienced anything like that, but maybe some of us here and assuredly some in the city that there's weightiness to these words. They feel the weight of Tolstoy in his 50s saying, what is the purpose of all this? What is the purpose of my work? What are the purpose of the days ahead? It is nothing but suffering and death is awaiting me. Can you feel that this morning? If you can't feel it in your own heart, maybe you can feel it in your conversations with a neighbor of yours or a coworker, someone who is in your very life. And I have a feeling, and in fact, I'd like to propose to us that as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've been doing over the past few weeks, we are also confronted with a man who is pondering some similar confessions about his life, about his work, and about the meaning. He knew a lot. He's filled with wisdom. Presumably, this man who we're speaking about is Solomon. He, he knew a whole bunch, but he seemed that he couldn't put the pieces of life together, and it drove him to utter discontentment. It drove him to utter hopelessness and utter despair. Um, one person said Herman Melville. If you guys know that name, wait for a second. Oh, that's right, the writer of Moby Dick. And he says that 
the book of Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. You wonder, how, how could he say that? How could he mean that? And I think what he's getting at is that this book really shines light on the human heart. It's not hard to make sense of Ecclesiastes because we're like, ah, my experience is there. I can feel what Solomon is saying. It presents this myriad of emotions that all of us humans experience at some point or other if we live on this earth long enough. And over the past few weeks, we've been getting a glimpse of that. We see a man named Solomon on a quest for satisfaction, for purpose in his toil, for ultimate meaning, pursuing that firstly in the, in the first chapter through wisdom and sophistication. And if I can only make sense with my mind, then I'll be satisfied. And what happened? Nope. Unfulfilling. And so he moves on to a life of hedonism or a life of pleasure, a life of setting his eyes on everything that he can, tasting all that this world has to offer. And the Hebrew word, hebel, vanity, meaninglessness, still can't put the pieces together. And so we find ourselves this morning moving on. A man coming to the end of himself in the ponderings of why should I pursue wise living? Maybe put another way, is there anything satisfying about living a good, moral, and wise life? Can I, can I squeeze the life if I'm, if I'm moral and good and wise enough in my decision-making, in the way that I live my life before work, before all spheres of my life, can I make sense of it? And where I'd like to take us this morning, and looking at three points, they're in your bulletin, but you can follow along as well, is firstly the pursuit of living wisely. Pursuing living wisely, what that looked like in our passage this morning. Secondly, looking at the emptiness, the emptiness or the limitations of living wisely. And finally, and where I would like to end is the true path to living wisely this morning. So we have the pursuit, the emptiness, the truth path. And so let's, let's first look at the pursuit of living wisely. And in verse 12, Solomon, the writer of, uh, of this narrative, he again is honest and he says, so I looked at intellectualism, I looked at pleasure, and now I'm turning to consider wisdom and madness and folly. I saw that intellect, my using my mind, I, there's, I couldn't find satisfaction there. This life of self-sufficiency and pleasure, there's nothing there. But what, about, what about morality? What about decent, virtuous living? What about that? Can I find in actually living wisely, maybe if I can instruct myself in this way, if I can follow after these good moral teachings, if I can only wake up every morning and live a decent, virtuous life, then I will be satisfied. Then I will find fulfillment. And he goes on to say, for what can the man do who comes after the king only what has been done? And you have to read this like, I read it probably 50 times this week and it's like, it's this strange language. What exactly is he getting at here? And, you know, not to bore you commentators, say different things about it. But I think the point is this. I think what he's trying to say is I've exhausted all avenues of success living wisely, pursuing all the ways of the world, and anyone who comes after me will only at best be able to copy the life that I've enjoyed. There's going to be nothing new under the sun. I've been there, I've done that, I've bought the t-shirt, and I'm telling you, I've lived it all. I've partied, I've built kingdoms, I've enjoyed romance and pleasure, 
I've read all the literature on being your best self. I don't know if you would have phrased it that way, but if you read through Proverbs, it is quite a how to be the virtuous person, to be your best self, to be disciplined. I've received honor and wealth like no person before me. And if anyone comes your way and says, there's something more, it's a sham. There's nothing new under the sun. And that's that's what I think he's getting across here. Even today, 2018, here in Toronto, we, we love hearing new things. And I think Solomon, if he was here with us this morning, he would say, all right, guys, it's a sham if there's something new. When it comes to the human heart, and when it comes to existentially who we are as people, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't be so pride, proud. But Solomon does want to make a point here. And it's interesting. There's a contrast here because as he goes on in verse 13, He makes a contrast about wisdom and folly, saying, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. So he's not totally trying to throw it out, saying, Okay, wisdom, living wisely, the decent, virtuous life, it isn't all in vain here. There's something to it. There's something incomparably superior to living a life of wisdom than to living a life of utter foolishness. I think that we can agree here that there is more gain in wisdom. It is better to be disciplined and hardworking than to go about your life apathetically and lazy at your work. I think that's true. It is better to live within your means than to buy a house that you can't afford. There's some wisdom there. It is better to exercise restraint I don't know if this will relate to anybody here, on delicious foods and drinks than becoming a glutton or an alcoholic. I mean, I think especially this is relevant in our society where it's just eat and drink and be merry, suck the life out of these, this avenue here. But there is wisdom in not becoming consumed by those things. And I think we see the rippling destructive effects when you are. And it is better not to learn the ways of a quick-tempered person but to be patient and gracious in our response towards one another. This is some wisdom here. I remember when I, uh, a story for me, when I first got uh, a credit card, okay? Uh, this, I'll, I'll be quick here, and I, hopefully I won't embarrass myself too much. But at first, I was really disciplined, and I would buy something on this credit card, and you're trying to earn points, and I felt so grown up here, and I'm you know, building credit to my name, and I would pay it off, but after a while, it just became this snowballing thing. Oh, there's a new pair of basketball shoes, and, you know, I'm going to book a flight here, and I was still putting money towards it, but it was, it was slowly becoming this monster that I knew nothing about. It was, it was growing, and one day I called in. I thought, I, you know what? I should probably deal with this credit card, and I, and I called in, and there was thousands of dollars on this thing, and I, right away, it's like I, like, fear sunk into my heart and thought, oh, my goodness, what, what have I done here? There's this wake-up call to me that this was a super foolish move, Chris. And I, and I have a feeling that probably for maybe a lot of us or a lot of us in society, we have a hard time with credit cards. And there's something to the wise person seeing the consequences that are ahead of them. And I think Solomon, in all these ways, he's saying the wise person, they have eyes in their head. They see ahead of them. They're not just living in the moment Because to live the foolish life is not the way to live, and you will reap the consequences of that. And so Solomon here, even though he's written this and he talks so much about vanity, he's standing in the great tradition of wisdom saying that if you instruct a wise man, he will be wiser still. 
Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Or he wrote, the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought in all of their ways. But the, fo- but the folly of fools is deceptive. And so he's saying here that, you know, pursuing wisdom, there's something good about it. There's more gain. There's something superior in having wisdom than in folly. Contrasting light and darkness. They have a wise person has eyes in their head. But he goes on here, and I think that we can quickly see in our text that his mood begins to change. And he says, which I think is so profound here, he says, yet I perceived, even though there's so much wisdom out there and I've obtained a lot of it myself, there's something wrong here still. There's something that changed in his mood. And he says, yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Whether you're wise, whether you're foolish, whether you're filled with madness, there is a same end game. What event is he talking about here? Well, I think that probably most of us here are in our mind, we're thinking death. None, no, 10 out of 10 people died. No one lives on forever. And so he begins to really wrestle with this question in his heart that living virtuous and pursuing kind of the moral superiority of this world, is it still going to matter because I die at the end of the day? I'm going to be put in a box six feet under at the end of the day. The problem of Ecclesiastes, of death, of chance, of injustice, of ignorance, he speaks so vividly that every person on this earth, whether you go to church, whether you don't go to church, whether you're a religious person, a spiritual person, someone who pursues the great philosophies of this age, there's something that is unavoidable to every person on this planet, and it is death. Doesn't matter how healthy we are, doesn't matter how, how much we take care of ourselves, of course, there's wisdom in that, but that you will die. And this makes sense of why he would say, go ahead, Chris, eat, drink, and be merry. Just enjoy your life because you are going to die one day. I think that's probably a very relevant thing that our culture would say amen to. And he goes on in verse 15, and he says these words, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. So what? Why am I exerting so much energy on this when I'm just going to die one day? When all this stuff will be in vain. When, as we'll see later, none of this stuff will be remembered. It will be like ash that is blown away and, oh, we forgot about Solomon. We forgot about Chris and his moral living because now he is dead. Death tramples all of our value system. It clears the playing field. Tolstoy, once more in his confessions, he says this, Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come. They have come already to those I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten, and I shall not exist. Then why should I go on making this effort with my work? How can man fail to see this, and how can I go on living That is what is so surprising. One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober and clear-minded, it is impossible not to see that all of life is just mere and a stupid fraud. That is precisely what it is. There is nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. Here's the honesty of a man who's saying, we're all dying one day. 
What is the point of all this stuff? Why am I pursuing this in my work, in my relationships? Have you thought about this before? I propose that if you subscribe to a very biological, evolutionary worldview of life, it's amazing that most atheists that you read that are probably from 100 years ago, this is how they spoke. A lot of the atheists today are optimistic and inconsistent in their arguments. But good atheists and atheists that I like to read, at least they're telling the truth that this is your hope. This is where you're going. Nothing matters because you're going to die one day. And Solomon, a man who had followed God, come to, he came to a point saying, whether I'm wise or a fool, it doesn't matter because this event will also happen to me. But there's more. In verse 16, he goes on after he'd said, why have I been very wise and said, in my, and I said that this is all vanity, meaningless, hebel. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. This is something in Ecclesiastes that you don't find written on any kind of, you know, graduation card or something where you write it to encourage somebody. He's being dead honest here that you will probably be forgotten. I, I asked some of the youth that I worked with this week if they knew any of their great-grandparents. You know, I was curious, any of their family tree, and only one of them, out of probably 12 of the kids actually knew who their great-grandparents were. Forgotten. No remembrance. It's, it's kind of a, a thought of despair in one sense, but that you too will be forgotten. There's people in our world who we can look back on, say, maybe Tolstoy. We look back at Solomon. We look back at some giants and men and women, and we do remember them. But 99% of this world will be forgotten, that your life will not be remembered I know that we're encouraged and we're spurred on to make a difference and leave a legacy. But the truth is, after decades, no one will remember Chris often enough. Or at least, and even if people do, six and a half billion people will have never heard of me. <laughs> Which is, in one sense, this is, a, this is an overwhelming thought that Solomon is dealing with. And so where does he turn after seeing that all the days to come will be forgotten? The wise dies as the fool. And so how does he respond? He says, I hated life. Life is awful. I hate waking up in the morning because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Maybe some of you here this morning, you're thinking, wow, this guy had a rough life or this is some rough periods of time that he's going through. But some are saying here this morning, that's not funny. I feel that way. That actually, I actually have experienced that or I feel that in my life that I hate life. I hate the circumstances that are going on in the relationships in my life. When I wake up in the morning and I go to work, there's no purpose there. I wish I could find another job or maybe if some were honest to say, I wish God would just take me. I've, got, I, I've actually gone through periods of time in my life where it's been that kind of darkness. There's been that kind of existential spiritual darkness where it's like, I don't even want to go on anymore. I don't even want to pursue ministry. I don't want to pursue the things that God has put into my heart because it's, it's, it's not working out or it's not making sense. I've lost the whole why behind the what. Is that you this morning? Do you feel the weight of what Solomon was saying? Fyodor Dostoevsky, who spoke greatly of Tolstoy, he said this, deprived of meaningful work, men and women lose their reason for existence. They go stark 
raving mad. When people lose their meaning and purpose for life of why they wake up in the morning, they lose it. They, nothing else makes sense. It falls apart. The puzzle pieces do not come together. And I think this is what Solomon, he's, he's saying that it's the spiritual, existential stuff in our life as we pursue the toils, present the most darkness in our life. It's purposelessness. If there's purpose, you can endure so much. Think of a pregnant woman who goes through an incredibly challenging, difficult pregnancy to know that, God willing, there will be a baby at the end of this. There's purpose that helps you get through it. Think about an athlete who is pursuing accolades within their world of athleticism or maybe even something small. You just want to be in shape and you want to be physically fit. When you wake up and you go to the gym, there's purpose there. It's okay when your body is aching and it's in pain because you know you're going somewhere. For someone who spends years in pursuing a master's or a PhD, knowing that at the end of this, this is where I I would love to be. There's purpose there for those long, sleepless nights where you're studying. For the person who goes to their work and knows that there's a purpose at the end of it, that I'm actually influencing the world, that I'm affecting the people around me, there's purpose. But when life is empty and pointless, and nothing matters, you wake up and you will hate life. Well, maybe we should pray this morning. No, we're going to continue on. So Solomon, he speaks of the emptiness of living wisely. But where can we turn here? What is the solution? What is this whole narrative of Ecclesiastes really pointing to? Is there any hope? Is there anything that can speak to his despair this morning, to your despair. And I want to just, I want to speak about the true path to living wisely. And up to this point, it's looked pretty grim. And if you're saying, wow, I came to church this morning on Thanksgiving, I'm going to hear an encouraging word. This is just utter darkness. What is this man talking about here? But until we know the bitterness and the depth of our problem as humans, The solution will not be sweet. Until we actually know this real epidemic that is facing our world, that faces us, the solution, the good news of anything that this Christian gospel has to offer will not be sweet to us. And so I want us purposefully to feel the darkness of a life that is so self-absorbed, that is trying to figure it out to live the decent, virtuous life on your own. And there's another voice in the book of Ecclesiastes that I believe that we have to look at. Solomon in his wrestling and putting the pieces together is being brutally honest. But as you go and as you look through Ecclesiastes, I believe it's so important that that to understand the book, you have to actually look at it in lens of the last chapter. That actually to make sense of Ecclesiastes, to make sense of what he's saying here, that we actually need to look at it through the end. And so let me read this out to you here, because I know it's not in your bulletin, but it's chapter 12, verse 13, and it's a summary. It's a a summarization after all of this thought of the toil, of the meaninglessness, the purposelessness, and he says, the end of the matter. Okay, let's let's get to the cutting edge, the point of it all. What is going to be the solution? The end of the matter is this, all has been heard. Now hear this, Solomon, and hear this people who will read this generations to come. Fear God 
and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All this frustration, all of this toil in pursuing ultimate meaning and satisfaction is pointing somewhere. It's pointing to what I believe the narrator is saying here at the end, that one, we need to fear God. You need to look outside of yourself and recognize that there is a God, that there is a creator who's at the center of our universe, not you. To take ourselves off of the throne of our own hearts and in all of our pursuits and actually look away and say, actually, I'm not at the center of my world, but God is, and I need to fear him. I need to be in awe of him. I need to realize that he created me and gave me breath. Someone had said, I felt that what, as I had read, kind of typing in depressing quotes of celebrities and all this stuff this week of just what their thoughts were on life. And someone said, I felt that what I had been standing on had collapsed and that I had nothing left under my feet. What I had lived on no longer existed and there was nothing left. Looking inwardly, looking to find meaning and purpose in themselves. But it reminds me, as we look for many, many books in the Bible, actually when Jesus began to contrast what it means to be wise versus foolish and how you actually live wisely. Where does that come from? And he begins to make, the, to make this contrast of these two builders. Stay with me here. And that there's this foolish builder who builds their life upon the sand. They build their life upon uh, something that is convenient, on something that initially, as you were to look at what they were building and say, wow, this is pretty good. There's no difference between someone who builds on sand and rock. But actually, once turmoil comes, once hardships come, once the storm comes, the one foundation is surely going to be exposed, and this is the foolish man. And Jesus is saying here that the one who, who's going to live a wise life, the one who's going to be wise, is going to listen to my words, and furthermore, is actually going to build the foundation upon his authority. Not just his words, but on Christ himself. The greatest sermon ever told by Jesus, he was saying, what is the foundation you're building your life upon? Oh, if, if Solomon could have heard this. Do we, do we build our lives on our intellect? Do we build our lives on the pleasures of this world? Do we build our lives on a good moral life? Because it might look good and great, but when the storm comes, one speaking imminently, which is the here and now, but the great storm of God's wrath, when you face God in judgment, will your foundation be strong enough? And Jesus is saying here, there's one foundation that will last and it's one that is built upon my words, namely, not just my words, but myself. You can't separate the two, the two. How do you prevent yourself from the floor falling out and falling into despair? You look away from yourself, you fear God, and you hear the words of Jesus as one that is a firm foundation in life. In Christ alone, our hope is found. This morning, if you're not a believer or you find that these words might be hard to hear, humor me for a second. That to look away from yourself, to see that there's someone greater than you who loves you, that it will be a foundation here and in the age to come. That when Paul said, to live is Christ as my foundation and actually to die, 
He didn't have such a, a dark thought about death because to die is game because I get to be with my Lord and Savior. What does that do to you when you wake up in the morning? What kind of suffering can you endure? What kind of stuff can we go through when we know to live is Christ, but to die is gain? I am untouchable because my Savior holds me in his hand. This is a foundation that we must build our lives upon. And I'm, I'm asking this morning, I'm pleading with you, is he your foundation? Are his words, are his life, is that the foundation of your life? Are we building on another foundation which Solomon spent a lifetime seeing if it would be strong enough and it was vanity, it was meaningless, it was hebel. The verse goes on to say, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. As I was thinking about this week, it doesn't take much to see that whether you're a religious person or not, that we as people built into us, that we long for justice. I mean, you look at the Supreme Court and what has happened recently over the past few weeks of two polarizing sides of, of, of people longing for justice, longing that the right thing is done. People who don't give a rip about God, they still care for the right thing to be done or in your workplace or in your life. You look around and you think something is not right here. And I want to ask, what, what actually puts that, com- that compass inside of you to actually think that way? It's the way that God has made us to be and that his scripture promises us that he doesn't overlook injustices. But actually, here it's saying that he will bring into judgment every secret thing, good or evil, that at the end of the day, God will make every wrong right, that he is building a new creation with new people a new community, a new world where people love justice and love him. We look forward to that day where suffering and poverty and injustice, that it comes to an end and our God makes things right. But maybe you're thinking, this is kind of a scary thought because if God is going to bring into deed every judgment and every secret thing, Chris, you have no idea what my heart is like. I can put on a good face, I can live a decent life, but you have no idea actually the, the wretchedness, the evil thoughts that I have towards others in my mind, the anger that wells up in, within me, but as adults, we can save face so, so well. This is a scary thought. If God is going to judge me, I feel like there's a lot more evilness in my heart than good. And I would say that is an overwhelming thought. If you are looking for salvation, if you are looking for satisfaction and fulfillment, where you're at the center of the story. That is a crippling thought to think that you can actually live a moral life by yourself because if you've lived long enough and you hear any of the wisest people of this world, they say, man, I've, I've made so many mistakes. I'm broken. I've made so many failures. But what if you look outside of yourself to a God who knows all about you? He knows every detail of your life and he still loves you and accepts you, not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus has done for you. How does that liberate you? How does that change your despair? Because that frees you to not obey him or do religious duties so that you'll be loved, but actually you know you're so loved by God that he's so beautiful that you can wake up and you can go and obey and live a virtuous life because you already know that you're satisfied by God, that he accepts you because of Jesus. Because when he hung on the cross and died and this great exchange happened, he took your sinful nature And he gave you a new heart, a heart of righteousness, a heart that longs for good, 
look away from yourself and you see the liberating reality that God knows that your heart is way worse than what you even imagine, but at the same time, he loves you, he adopts you, he brings you in to a family more, which is more beautiful, more wonderful than you could ever imagine. Because of what he's done, this makes him look beautiful. I wish Solomon could have looked forward to the days of Christ when Jesus had said, Solomon, there's much trouble in this world. Don't let your heart be overcome because I have overcome the world. Sure, you're going to face things. There's going to be times of distress, and maybe that's you this morning, and you're thinking, but I do love God, and I do still hate my life. And the call to you is to still look away from yourself. Look to Jesus, who is beautiful, who is loving, who is accepting. And that makes the difference because he doesn't love you because of how many good things he does. He looks upon his son who lived the perfect life in your place. And I pray that that would change us from the inside out. That would change the way that we love our city. It would change the way that we love one another. It would change the way we do our marriages. It would change the way that we parent our kids. It would change the way that we live as young adults in this community. The ramifications are radical when you know that God loves you because of Christ. And actually, when he loves you, he makes you lovely. This is the beautiful good news of the gospel, that all of this darkness was pointing forward towards the restless heart, the discontent heart, the heart of despair was pointing forward. Fear God. Obey his commandments. See that everything Every deed will be brought into judgment. If we see that Christ is our covering, that he's the one who went before us and gave himself for us, this is a beautiful ending to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray this morning.